and welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. Alright, one of my favorite people in the world to talk to is David Schroeder. Uh, For over five years, David has worked for Guinness Brewery and currently serves as a brewery ambassador. So as you can imagine, we talk about beer uh, a fair bit, but when we're not talking about beer, we're mostly talking about film. Now, ostensibly, this is a podcast about beverages, but if you've watched any number of Tarantino or Scorsese or Almodovar films, you know that movies and food and drink cross paths plenty of times. Um, But beyond kind of those like narrative elements, I've been thinking about going to the movies and dining out, both of which are these communal experiences that are just totally vestiges of a pre-pandemic era. So I wanted to catch up with David and hear about what he's been watching and what he's been drinking. David's based in Denver, Colorado, and he's been working on some really exciting projects on the educational front with Guinness. So I banged his line, we caught up, and the first thing we talked about was the gigantic copper still behind him in the uh, Zoom chat. So he'll start explaining what that big piece of equipment is. We'll start right there. This is a still uh, that I bought from Austria right when lockdown quarantine happened. It's a company that specializes in distilling things from plant material. So not booze, just aromatics. Hmm. Um, Because my theory is, and and I've wanted to do this hobby for a very long time, is that uh, in order to understand, like when we, you know, as you know, working in the world of wine and me and beer, you smell all these different things and you're comparing them to something else. And when you really get down to it, a lot of those flavors, like I just wanted to understand those flavors, you know, so I'm really into aroma and fragrance and things like that. But I just have wanted to do that for years. So right when the, you know, quarantine happened and then we got (laughs) that that stimulus check or whatever, I was like, okay, that's going straight to this still. Hell yeah. They shipped it over from Austria and I've just been fucking around with it, man. I did. um, What kind of herbs and. I did stuff from um, like, I'm really interested, especially in the fragrance world. There's not a lot of like, kind of like beer. There's a lot of citrus and Americans really palates really like citrus and bright flavors and fruit derived flavors, Mm -hmm. but uh, there's not a lot of woody and like Mm -hmm. um, that kind of those kinds of flavors. And in beer, you find those in like saisons and, you know, really like, rustic styles Mm. um so i did cedar which which turned out okay you can actually see i have all the bottles of stuff that i've still little champagne splits are the best because Mm. it tapers down the side i did oak moss which was interesting and i just went out last week and uh this is all just foraging things right you're just whatever you find out there some of it i bought just because i wanted to like i didn't know the foraging was another thing to add complexity like another complexity that i wasn't sure like you have to find the right trees you have to find when is the right time and this book and this people that make the still are very good about being specific about like don't do it when it's rain like make sure it hasn't rained for three days Hmm. isn't a problem in the mountains but yeah so i foraged for doug i was looking specifically for doug furs and anything off a pine that would be very like that would give me kind of like pine flavors and 
because that's in abundance here in the yeah. here and in the Pacific Northwest. So uh, it went went well. I mean, at, at first it had a very like menthol kind of flavor when it come came right off the still off this little shoot. Mm -hmm. um, it had a very menthol type flavor, but that's that's after the the last week it sat. It's kind of cooled off and you think that's like the aroma is kind of oxidizing slightly like it's taking on a different sort of aroma or yeah i don't know yeah, yeah. <laughs> these are all the questions that we don't know about aroma and i'm just kind of like in the beverage category right now you have you know these seltzers that are taking off and a lot of those are you know that's just like flavor science you know those are those yeah. are you know those are aromatic compounds that have been used forever to denote a certain flavor and and stand in really as a placeholder of a certain flavor in you know food and candy and now seltzer and it's not really the whole picture so if yeah. i get you know even if i buy like a repu reputable essential oil yeah. i don't i'm not sure that that is like the full picture of what the pines are here in colorado so i'm trying to really understand that because i think that'll help you know, I've just always been interested in, in fragrance and I want to know more about, it. I'm not into the ascent. It's funny. It's funny to be in a hobby where everybody else is in it for like healing essential oils, which I'm not like, you know, against. They're here to cure COVID with those things. Bro. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I told Brandon that you're trying to save, save the human race. You know, who needs know. a vaccine when you've got some peppermint essential oil, you know, that's all That's you need. I told Brandon Kern, I'm going to be one of the people hawking essentials on <laughs> Facebook, but I really just want to move them into something else. Like preferably like, I mean, like ultimately a fragrance. That's what I'm really into. Yeah, but man. I just kind of, once you have the oil, that's the essential ingredient. You can do whatever the hell you want with it. It's funny. You were saying that there's kind of like this arbitrary, like fruit aroma or flavor that's been assigned to certain, you know, candies or seltzers, whatever it is. Like I, I always think of banana, like whenever I have like banana candy or like that artificial banana flavor, it always feels like there's a chasm there. There's this huge gap between what an actual banana tastes like and that banana flavor that you get, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that. There's actually, I think, a reason for that. Um, in in the, in the, um, you know, in flavor in the world of flavor science, which I love, like going to different, like being a tourist in different, uh, like different professions. And I think I'm to an extent that way with the wine world because I refuse to learn anything about wine other than what you guys have, just being around you guys yeah. and girls, but. Um, I'm kind of a tourist and I like that because there's a lot of things to learn, but there's also, it's also no pressure and responsibility whatsoever. Yeah. But, um, and the flavors, there's a whole world in flavor science, you know, and like they, they work so closely with us in a lot of ways, but we're doing like completely different things. But, um, there was two things that have stuck with me when I kind of dug into that. One of them is about banana. So isoamyl acetate, which is, uh, produced in during fermentation, particularly in in hefeweizens, would be a really like a very or Weiss beer, German Weiss beer would be a good example of one that's got it. Um, it's isoamyl acetate is the co aromatic compound, which is also the air the the flavor that they add to banana candy. I heard mm. that that was based off a, a banana that is now extinct, called hmm. the Grosse Saint Michel banana. And the banana, they used to, like, I think maybe our parents, if they were at the supermarket, they would have got one of these types of bananas, like maybe side by side. But um, they're not, you can't find them. I think they're completely extinct. But you def, you know, 
that and so there is a literal like difference and maybe if that other banana would taste more like a banana can yeah. just a trip to think about yeah that's crazy to think about it's like yeah. the matrix. It's like the matrix, you know. It's like, hey, here's the <laughs> your this flavor of banana has disappeared, but you know it through abstraction. So if we reintroduced it to you, you'd be like, oh, that's I guess that's banana candy, but it's originally a banana. So it's weird. It's a rabbit hole. That's funny. So you have been working on these like aromatic compounds with that still. Have you been brewing at all? No, I don't really brew and I don't know. I have the equipment to brew, but um, I have the kegerator that you've, you yeah. know. And so I've got like, I've got five things on right now. So I've got Guinness draft. I always have on because I work for Guinness and I like having it poured a certain, you know, served a certain way. And then I usually have a Pilsner on right now. It's an interesting Pilsner from AC Coors. It's kind of like this small uh, craft brewery within um miller course and because uh uh cores is based here in golden outside of denver so um they make a old rustic style barman's pills that's supposedly been made for generations so i got a keg of that because usually that's on premise only so i snagged that mm -hmm. whenever quarantine happened which is pretty good and then i've got saint bernardus wit on and then i've got uh cold brew coffee um oh, so i guess that's four is that right? Yeah, that's four. So uh, cold brew coffee on two. So long story short, is, I, is that, that a cold brew that you're making yourself and then kegging or you're buying that cold brew? I used to um, work at a coffee roaster in Austin called Third Coast Coffee, and they make, I think, the best cold brew. Um, you know, they package it, but also just the blend. If you call the store and ask them for it, they'll give it to you. And that's what I do. And they ship the beans here, and then I make it, and then I put it in a keg, and then I push it off nitro. Hmm. But, I mean, I think that uh, the pattern I guess I have um, is um, that I, if I find something I really like, and I'm always searching for things I really like, I, I try to either recreate it or just have it as I think, you know, as a buyer, <laughs> you're yeah. just like, you have something amazing and it's not available in your state. And you're like, okay, well, how can I get it? How can I get it to my state? Yeah. Um, but that, you know, so for beer, that's, I feel lucky because I'm able to find shit from all over the world. And sometimes I run into like distribution shit, but not often. There's only a few styles that I think can think of where I'm like, that I can't get the best example of. Um, and one of them would be like a Czech Pilsner. Um, I mean, I can get, you can get really good Pilsners in, in a lot of big cities in America, including yours and mine and Oregon. The Pilsner scene's great right now, but um, in terms of like an old rustic uh, Pilsner where my favorite beer of all time was the Czech Pilsner in uh, Chess in, uh, Kutna Sumave. It's southwest uh, Czech Republic, about three hours southwest of Prague. And it's a very yeah. old rustic brewery. Uh, and they made the best beer. That's like my desert island beer if I had to choose one beer for the rest of my life. And they went out of business last year. <laughs> As you yeah. entered a proverbial desert, you know, yeah. the desert island hypothetical has been put to the test during quarantine for a lot of people. Yeah. When you're suddenly like essentially on a desert island, when you're kind of isolated from other people, it's kind of like you are in that position where you are 
kind of stuck with whatever you have. So the fact yeah. that you've been able to, you know, work your distribution channels to get what you want on tap at your house. You yeah. Know. That's how I feel. That's how I feel about it. I think I am like on a, on an arc cause I, I like to keep those things close to me. And that this biggest scare is, is that they disappear. As you know, you've traveled to producers and you taste certain things and you're like, you know, we take for granted with, I think the internet causes us to think that there is a comprehensive exhaustive record of everything that there is and ever, ever will be, which is just patently false. And I think that, you know, the check, the Czech Pilsner that I was my favorite that went out of business. That's an example of like you travel and taste these things and then they can disappear. They are endangered. And so that would be an example of something I, that would be a style where I would want to brew it, uh, which would be really hard to make maybe like an alt beer. When I was in Dusseldorf and had alt beer, it was extremely like an extremely different experience than any, any alt beer I'd have here domestically. So there's a couple styles where I'm like, that doesn't exist in my world. I would like to have it. And the only way to have it is really to make it. But I still have all this other shit going on. So I'm not like, it. There also the rate of failure, because as you know, like I think Ira Glass said, like part of doing something is getting used to the fact that you're not going to make something as good as you want it to be for a very long time. And you have to get over that. My palate, I, for what I look at, like, and look for in beer, it's like I look for a, a lot. And if it's if I make a five or ten gallon batch of beer and it doesn't have those elements, then I can kid myself and be like, "Yeah, this is pretty good," but I'm I'm not going to yeah. drink it, you know. So mm -hmm. the, it's a, probably a fear of failure more than anything. But it's also uh, there. There's also high risk of failure in that hobby. Whereas this, you know, I'm. I don't, I'm not going, I don't know anything about the still or aromatics. So it's kind of learning something from scratch. There's less of that comparison factor. You were talking about how you have Guinness on draft at your house because you like it served a very specific way. That's kind of hard to get. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Like how you like it served? Yeah, this is what we're happened to be working on a lot right now, which is um, in the United States, because you had the situation where restaurants have opened up, closed, those draft lines have have heated up and cooled down and sometimes not been packed with cleaner and so it's kind of like in terms of draft <laughs> draft line quality in the united states which as sexy as it sounds is a day is a day in and day out job that we always think about in the beer industry um it's in the worst state it's ever been and so that we're actively guinness along with many other suppliers is actively trying to figure out how to um, how to make, at least make sure that these are, these lines don't serve infected beer is basically yeah. the, the baseline. But even in before COVID, we were thinking about what makes a Guinness perfect. And it's such a subtle beer, um, that I know you could, there's probably a good wine comparison here of something where there's a, a wine that is lower in alcohol and subtle flavors. And they're all like, it does, it achieves something in its subtlety and its harmony in those, like in those flavors that a bigger wine could never achieve. And Guinness is one of those beers. It's the flavors of bitterness slash dryness, um, but the roastiness, slight acidity, um, and the texture, all of those come together in a way that is as cask beer, lower ABV beer did in the past. It's meant for of course, it's sessionability and being able to drink a lot of it, but also very subtle, harmonized flavors, which English brewing tradition tends to do. 
So all that being said, Guinness is, when it's perfect, <laughs> it's one of the best beers I've ever had. But whenever one of those elements is out of whack, either because the temperature is too cold or the line, like right now, the line is not clean. Um, or typically the temperature is the biggest one in the United States because we're sharing with, you know, beers that advertise its their coldness. And so like a lot of beer coolers are, are kept very cold. Um, but it's kind of everything. I don't know. I just, I, I did it and started in St. Louis and I was like, I was working for Guinness in St. Louis as a sales rep. And I was just like, I can't find anybody that serves Guinness, like exactly how I want it. So I got this kegerator that can hold a bunch of beer. And ever since then it's, it's, I just, I, and it's also a good learning thing because I can constantly mess around with it and figure mm -hmm. out exactly what, what works, what makes it better. Um, I've drank a lot of old kegs because that's been a huge issue. You know, shutdown happened here. Oh, literally. yeah. Yeah, literally on March 17th, we shut down in Denver and pretty much around that time everywhere else. And so we, that's our biggest, you know, that's the when we sell the most beer on St. Patrick's Day. And so is there like a ratio of that? Like how much beer you sell in the month of March compared to like the rest of the year, the, the other 11 months? I've heard it before. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> I don't have it memorized because I think it's kind of because it's kind of depressing to those of us that want to <laughs> think of this beer outside of its, the terms that it lives. I mean, the, the St. Patrick's Day is great. It's a purely American holiday that's now been exported back to Ireland. And there's a lot of things to celebrate about that. And like the fact that there's a ton of people in the United States with Irish American history and the, and the story of Irish immigrants in you know the late 1800s is unbelievable it's unbelievable what they had to go through and what they how they did get here and then once they got here the sort of foods like corned beef is uniquely irish american it doesn't exist in ireland at all but that was a response of you know an invention of irish americans you know mimicking it so there's a lot of cool things about saint patrick's day but I like to drink guinness all year round and i would like people to drink guinness all year yeah. round and not just like one day at like one day a year be like oh that's like it's saint patrick's day i guess i ought to have one and so i'm kind of always tasking me and the people that i work with we are constantly thinking about what are the you know details of this beer when they're locked in that will ultimately get people to drink more and i've seen that happen with places i've learned like i've lived in different cities and friends will send me like pints of Guinness while, when they're drinking it. And I know that they didn't drink Guinness before. So I know that there is something that can kind of click. And then it's like, it serves a purpose that no other beer really can, but. So a big part of it is like recontextualizing the beer to not think about it as something that's like a once a year sort of occasion, but. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think ultimately like some of that is marketing, but I want to believe that if you have it, like I had this theory, maybe that it's <laughs> like, what is it that causes somebody to like, add something to their regular shopping list. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, it, and it doesn't have to be Guinness. It could be anything, I think. Yeah. But I, I try to think about those things a lot. It, it's just, I think with Guinness, there is a certain amount of like pints that you have. Like when I moved to Houston and like we met shortly after, like you knew me as the Guinness guy, but like I would, Brandon and I would run to a place downtown that had a really good pint of Guinness. Yeah. And then we would have a couple pints and then we'd run, run around some more for ex quote unquote exercise. But 
Brandon, I'm sure, didn't like that when he first had it. Like, not that he didn't not like it, but by the time I left Houston two or three years later, he now drinks Guinness regularly. So I, it's kind of like companionship or, or you know, that doing it with somebody else. But how many numbers of times is that? I mean, that's kind of a shitty way to think about it. Corporate way to think about it is like um, number of pints times friendship times this. And then you have a lifetime customer. So maybe we can talk real quick about um, your approach to beer education, because that's something I think you do really well. I'm thinking back to like the live brew labs where you literally brewed a beer on stage while teaching people about beer. So yeah. that I thought was like one of the most unique kind of master classes on any form of beverage that I've attended. And I That's think the way in which Thank you. it was super cool. Um, it kept everyone in the audience engaged and it allowed you to talk about theory and then incorporate kind of the logistics of brewing, which is, I think, the challenge with any beer education is you either approach it from the standpoint of a brewer where the focus is on how the beer is made, or you're approaching it from the perspective of someone like me as a sommelier, where it's like, how is this made in relation to where it's from and all of these other bits of context? Like yeah. when I'm selling this product to the consumer, do I talk about how it's made or where it's from and the history behind that? Yeah, I think, so I've been doing a lot of, um, of Zoom education so a uh, lot of like classes where i'm giving mainly inter in internal to diageo the beer division uh to our own people um so it's allowed me to revisit brew lab that you've seen which i really appreciate you recognize it's really nice that people uh like it because it's it did feel like the culmination of a lot of years of work so I've been allowed to revisit that, um, but it, and also in general beer education. Um, and I think you're right. There's a lot of like with anything I've realized that's like a complex. I could include wine in this list is when there's a really complex system of information. It's amazing that people like us who are experts on this and who have dedicated our lives to this passion into getting other people to like this passion like we do and make careers out of it, how bad we can be at really teaching it. And I think that I realized that a lot of people and a lot of Psalms, like, I mean, Psalms are some of the most intelligent people, like the Psalms friends that I've met through years of being in your social circle is like, they're some of the most intelligent people, but the beer, how beer is made is still a mystery. And that's crazy to me because how can that be that somebody who has such an intuitive or, um, you know, innate understanding of fermentation and flavor, how could it not have been presented well to them even? So, well, there's also that weird thing where the more and more, you know, the deeper down the rabbit hole you go, sometimes the worse you get at actually communicating to that like end consumer. Yeah, you're absolutely. so dialed in, you're so deep into it that you've kind of lost the ability in some instances to communicate with others. Yeah. But I think it's, I, but I think the two sayings that like have guided, like, of course there's like the axiom, like if you can't explain, explain it simply, you don't know it, you don't know it well enough. And so, yeah, when you deep dive into information and I am the most guilty of this deep diving into information and losing sight of it, but I can look back at those times when I did teach something poorly. And it was usually because I didn't quite understand it well enough. And sometimes like, 
be like education and these presentations and this job I have is like being a comic. And sometimes you're like getting up in front of a crowd and like testing things out. And I know for a fact that like when you've seen Brew Lab, I don't remember which instance it was, but like it certainly has changed a lot since then because you do start to get that. You get, you can see in people's eyes, like when they are nodding and like they get it. And that brings me to the second most important phrase of education, which is like, and really hospitality in general, it comes from the Grand Budapest Hotel. And um, he says like, when you meet somebody that's being rude, it's an expression of, of fear and that people are rude because they're afraid they're not going to get what they want. And I think mm -hmm. it's such a profound thing. And I feel that there is fear when people are talking about something they don't know about. And I realize that with Psalms, and I realize that especially with trade people like bartenders, like doing a lot of work with the United States Bartenders Guild, that they, they, I know the feeling of going out in a restaurant or I've had the nightmares of going out in a restaurant and not knowing anything about the food and having people ask you questions about something. And I know that feeling of fear and it's terrifying and it's horrible and no one should have to go through that. And especially with beer. And so my classes are very much designed to like, like you said, like understanding, like trying to get it where it's like, well, what are the, like philosophically, what are the things that people need to know about beer? But more like from a more practical standpoint, the, the patterns that I see that with all systems of knowledge is like what you just said, like there is a massive system of knowledge and people are very invested in it, but they're not good at translating that to people from the outside, either be, most likely because they don't see the patterns, the good patterns themselves. But in each of these, there are patterns. And the way that I had to learn brewing beer from the brewery was um, what I had to learn the really like how, I don't know, because I was a home brewer and then I worked at a brewery and then I was a brewer at that brewery. And so there was a lot of time spent, like I, we would have open house Saturdays and like where at Independence in Austin, we would have people out and they would like give tours and we'd have like a brewer give a tour every once in a while. And I would try to explain to people how beer was made, even though these tanks were sitting dormant on that Saturday. Um, and then you realize like, okay, like, beer is comprised of four ingredients. Um, three of them give flavor. Um, and each of them is distinct in that what flavors they give and what temperatures they like. And each of them has a vessel that facilitates the temperature that they like. And once it broke down into that way, like all of the system of knowledge went from malt, which is converted in the mash tun uh, at a certain degree, a temperature range, and gives obviously multi flavors, but a whole host of like, I actually have malt ca flavor category charts behind me here, mm. but like all tons of different, you know, flavors, hops like and need to be boiled and they impart all of these different distinct flavors and yeast like to be at a temperature degree much lower. And it does obviously the central task of fermentation, but also gives all of these flavors. And when you see it, on a tabletop in the brewing demonstration, hey, here's malt. Like I'm gonna convert this malt because it needs to be converted from starch to sugar. Here, let's talk about like what malt flavors are in beer. Let's talk about what styles are, uh, like what are the different expressions of malt. Uh, and you do that with each and every ingredient. And then you figure out that you can layer all, whether you're talking about off flavors in beer or you're talking about um, 
style categories or really anything i've layered all of my knowledge and beer on that like process and it's a very helpful way to understand and so the goal of the end of that clash or any of my classes should be not that somebody necessarily knows the history of stouts from the beginning of time but that they when they taste something they should be able to say i taste this it is from this, it is most like this, and be able to talk about it and understand it and conceptualize, put into you know concrete form the things that they're tasting uh, subjectively. So I think with education, I've noticed this a lot with every one of my classes, I now have like 20 or something like that, um, that cover a whole range of topics from like sour beer to hops to the brewing process and brew lab to whatever. I think that you can categorize things into three columns there's usually like there it's kind of like the prestige where they're like this is the he says like this is okay i'm going to show you the trick and then i'm going to have the turn and then i'm going to have this and it's kind of like everything we've talked about narratively you can usually boil things down and be both comprehensive in a way if not comprehensive it is a way to start people's understanding of it and that's what i said about brew lab is, is that it should be a trailhead. So if I can't get teach you everything, I can at least teach you those three pillars where you can start to understand things from that perspective and you can go down, you know, whatever slope you want to that's of mm -hmm. your interest. So I think that it probably holds in everything because I've also done a lot with cheese for the Guinness uh, guide project I've been working you on. You want to talk about that a little bit? That's <laughs> like a pairing guide or? So back in the day in the 1948, there was a guy that moved from London to New York City and opened up an ad agency in New York City on Madison Avenue. Cause he said like the center, the epicenter of marketing and advertising is in New York City on Madison Avenue, which we all know from Mad Men. But he, his first client was Guinness and they created these ads. Uh, I'm showing them, which isn't good for the podcast, but like that you can search Guinness guide to oysters or Guinness guide to cheese online and they're these beautiful like striking contrast sort of guides that are in a grid format and they would just go through and they would put these in magazines and they would just say we're going to talk about cheese and it's one of the first examples of native advertising and so a year or two ago i pitched like i've been pitching it for a really long time but it finally got traction with guinness and i said like i would really like to revise these um and redo a guinness guide to oysters with same uh artistic style but uh you know updating the information um and so i did like i did guinness guide to um cheese these are all like in development right now guinness guide to cheese guinness guide to oysters guinness guide to chocolate and coffee which is really fun and then there's another one that's like guinness guide to cooking techniques hmm. um but the what I learned with that is because I got really into cheese, the cheese world. And there is a, a again, there's this totally separate world of people who are doing what we do, but in a slightly different way. And that is the American, like the cheese making society. And um, they have conferences and they get drunk and they argue about cheese. And um, it's just a whole thing. But I realized with cheese, it's the same exact thing. I went to Murray's in New York. I went to Antonelli's in Austin. I went to cheese school in San Francisco and cheese bar in Portland and just sat down with the people that own that are in charge of cheese. Basically their life and passion is cheese education because they yeah. are economically tied to it. And they 
I said, just teach me everything, you know, or teach me everything you want to know. And it was the same pattern of just like, they teach, they show you everything. And there are some categorizations, but they're not really the most efficient. And so the same thing exists, I think, in everything. It's just like you said, people get so into it. And it's just like their life that they take for granted that they forget to like, bring other people into it. Yeah. And if it was really hard with oysters to figure out like, well, what are the things that people need to know about oysters? And one of them was the life cycle. Um, one of them is the five different species of oysters. And one of them is like the tasting notes that you get from oysters. But I had a really hard time like coming into these like a journalist and a tourist just like coming in. I don't know anything, but I'm going to assume that there are similar categorizations of quality, geography, you know, and all these types of things that apply. And they, they are, they all exist. Yeah. So the patterns, I think a lot like are there. And the more that we can hone into them, the more we can have a common language with people that um, are trying to learn more about it. But like, just like that quote, they're afraid they're not going to get what they want. So if somebody comes in, they don't know how to order cheese or they don't know how to order oysters. It's because they're afraid. <laughs> They're afraid yeah. they don't know. And it's important for us as people that know this stuff to be able to have those common patterns that we can link people into. This is cool. I'm I'm looking at the Guinness Guide to Oysters and the Guinness Guide to Cheese online. And it sounds like you went pretty deep into the cheese world. I mean, what were some of the biggest things you learned from that period, either about different types of cheese or pairing Guinness with cheese? I mean, I did, I did go really deep in and went to, I mean, the main thing for me was trying to figure out the grid. Like, so if you look at the Guinness Guide to Cheese as it stands from the 50s, like there's a lot of like, the lady that owns the, I can't remember her name, but she taught me like an awesome masterclass in the cheese school in San Francisco, which is an awesome cheese shop. She, she said like, she looked at this guide and she was like, this is like the greatest hits of English cheese. And same thing with the oysters, like everything's changed so much and there's so much more availability now. Yeah. And like there's Kumamoto's in the United States now where, where there weren't in 1948. So mm -hmm. I think both of them, like the biggest thing with cheese was like understanding the different types and being able to categorize them. So when you go to a case, and this is true in wine too, I think, like I, I think that people go up to that case and they're like, I don't know what I like. I like some, like they might even say like, I like goat. That's little information as like goat milk as an ingredient is not, it's, there's a spectrum of goat cheeses all over the yeah. place. And so the biggest, hardest thing I think for most of the guides was figuring out how to categorize it in a way that gave that common language. For cheese, I came up with, I think there's like six or seven. Um, and they go from like, Burrata and mozzarella, which are really obviously fresh cheeses, all the way to the bottom corner, which is like an old Parmesan, and then understanding everything in between. And the goal is um, even more so from the original guides, I ads in the 50s, I think that the my goal was like people would read this and then have the language to be able to go to a cheese shop and be like, I like throw out three descriptors and get close to what they like that's yeah. like i think that's what every purveyor actually wants their guests to say is like mm -hmm. if you could just tell me like i know like from what little i know about wine that i like oaky i like um like i like i used to like juicy it's a little bit it, it's i like something with a little bit of tannins a little bit of roundness but i can i can say like 
You you have a common language with the I people that stuff. are trying to sell you this product, you know? Yeah. And I don't even study it. I just have been around you guys enough to be like, okay. And that's, I think having those handful of descriptors or like with bubbly, it's like, okay, I like bubbly, but I like it with like where it's got that like brioche quality. Cause it's been on the, the lees for like, it's got that lees contact, like those little bit of descriptors help your SOM like light years. Whereas they're starting from scratch and you just say like, I remember working at Olio because it's a, primarily a wine bar. And I learned that like, if somebody says they want a dry red, they actually don't want a dry red. They just don't, their, their definition of sweet is like really shitty boxed wine or like, or yeah. jugged wine and shit like that. So they think that their definition of dry is dry, but it's actually not, it's actually sweet. So it's like, there's certain words that you have to, you know, you have to translate. You have to your translate best. exactly. Yeah. And that can. And if only <laughs> there was a PSA in each of these, you know, yeah. these categories that taught people like, boom, you like this. And so with cheese, like for me, I realized like I don't have that for myself. Like I have some ideas. I could throw out some, like I could say I like, you know, um, I, I could say I like brie or camembert, but that's not that gets them close, but it's still not the category. It maybe gives them a texture, but not necessarily a flavor. Right. Yeah. And, like, like it, and I'm sure that happens all the time in wine. People come in and they're like, they, they'll throw out a random like grape or even a random producer when they're like, Oh, when we went to Napa and we went to this one place and they throw it out there. And if you don't have it, they're like horrified. And it's like, that's not, that's not, you think that that's helpful, but it's actually not like I'm, more trying to see what is the spectrum of sugar level, acidity, tannins, and bitterness that you like. And then I can plug you in and I can give you the best thing you've ever had, but I have to have those words. And yeah. so with cheese, I realized I didn't have that for myself. And so it was really fun to like pick them apart and realize like, okay, bloomy rind is like a category of cheese that contains, um, you know, all levels of intensity from brie to camembert uh, to, uh, something that's, you know, Vacheron, Vacheron, which is like really intense. Um, and then, you know, uh, wash dry and have like, you know, how they're made, but also like, what are their flavor? And then Alpine is what I really like. So just categorizing them out to understand selfishly what I like, but then <laughs> also understanding what the whole spectrum is. So at the end of reading the guide, or seeing it and if there was it was ever to run in a magazine or whatever, you should be able to be like, okay, I like this. And you can go into a cheese shop, point at and be like, I like this category. What do you have in this category? And you've just helped your like your understanding of you just helped your cheesemonger so much because now they're like, thank God I can give you what you want, where we had this chasm before. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it exists in everything. I'm convinced like everything with a complex, I'm sure there's some things that don't, but they're simpler, but I think that in everything there exists this sort of like complex system of information that can, that is overwhelming and you should be overwhelmed with it when you're learning something new. And then you can sort of figure out like, okay, here's column A, here's column B, C, and this is how I'm going to divvy this information up so I can understand it. And then hopefully as an educator, you turn around and share that with other people so they can understand and enjoy this stuff more. Hell yeah. I wanted to ask you about movies because we both, you and I both like movies. And I, part of me wants to make a connection between like restaurants and movies. 
because in both of them, like I think the restaurant experience that you and I both appreciate and look for is where you are, are also the same things you look for in a movie. Like one that takes you to a different world, um, yeah. one that makes you experience different things or see things in a different way. And there's something really nice about meeting a restaurant, a chef, restaurateur, or a filmmaker, or like seeing their work and like watching them continue to do things. So I think there's like parallel. Yeah. I don't know. Is that like far fetched or like? No, I it, think I I think they're very experience based products, right? Yeah. So much of it is like how it makes you feel. That yeah. it's not just the sum of the parts. You know, it's not something that is seen as like. You can use the most expensive camera and hire the best director and get the highest paid actor and you might end up with a shit project. Yeah, Just like you can, you can buy the best yeah. raw ingredients and buy or rent, you know, space on the hottest part of, you know, Main Street in whatever city and you might still end up with a restaurant that's a colossal failure, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. And on the flip side, you could have uh, an untested director with a first time screenwriter, you know, yeah, and end up with an amazing film. You know, the I, I think that maybe is a good comparison. You look at like a movie with like a very low budget, you know, whatever it whatever it is, you know, it could be uh, fucking hereditary, right? Yeah, a movie that had like a very low budget. You know, Ari Aster, I think it was like one of his first, it was his first full length film, Correct, you know, yeah. and surely you have like Tony Collette, great actress, you know, well established, but ends up being this like amazing movie, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's and I think there's also been a liberalization in both categories, too, because like Ari Aster, like I like I love Ari Aster because he um, his second movie, Midsummer was like mind blowing to me. And I, I tend to like mm -hmm. a lot of movies that I realize that I tend to like a lot of movies that have to do with grief and trauma and how people, because I think those things like are in a sense universal, but also like, it's really like makes humans do weird and unique things to them. And I love that. I like that aspect of that. And like Midsummer is 100% about grief and trauma. And so like I, we, you brought up. And we, it's a great breakup film. I don't know. It's like, to me, it's, it, it's a breakup movie. But like, I mean, the first scene, first of all, like, I mean, I don't think there's, in the same way Hereditary had an amazing first, like a very gripping and I think that's because he made short films before, which mm -hmm. require you to get somebody's attention very early on. But in both of those movies, the first 10 minutes are some of the just completely unique, like thing that I've ever, I've never seen anything like both of those first 10 minutes. And it's not because her, like the, the story with her family, it's not just about him. I think Florence Pugh's like scene where she is like, just screaming out in pain and anguish is the most, like one of the most truthful things I've ever seen any, anywhere committed to film. Like I, I, it's impossible. There's a, there's a thing that I think about with movies and with, I think with, um, with restaurants is that mm -hmm. um, like, and it, it comes from a David Mamet quote that he wrote in true versus false, which is you don't, people don't go to see a magician to find out how they did the trick. They go to be fooled. And like, I think all art, whether you see it, hear it, taste it, or feel it, 
is is based on that that's essential like imitation um just as that i think that's the central like mechanism by which because i think I, and the more I, it's one of those things where the more you think about it um the the real the more you realize it's what everything is based upon um whether like my favorite thing about any food or drink is is that it transports you to a different time and place that is in a sense an illusion um they in arrested development they they put it like Ben Stiller's character was like, um, he said that he called the audience the howdy do that, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was so good. Like, he's just like, Ooh, the howdy do that. And they, that's how he referred to the audience. But I think that's a really funny way, but also a truthful way of whether you're a guest or you're drinking something or yeah. you're watching a movie. Um, but I think that that's kind of the, the, that illusion is the central thing. And most of the experiences that I like create some sense of that illusion. <laughs> well, I think all of your beer illusions have been very successful. Um, thanks again, man, uh, for really taking the time to chat. It's been fun. This has been fun, man. Thanks for indulging me. This episode uh, was just a snippet of the full conversation that David and I had. There's about an extra hour of film debate about everything from The Big Lebowski to David Lindelof's Watchmen that ended up on the cutting room floor. So maybe there'll be a bonus episode. Who's to say? But anyways, I appreciate y'all for listening. To follow David's work with Guinness, you can find him on Instagram at GetToTheWell. You can also follow this podcast on Instagram at ByTheGlassPodcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify or Apple or Stitcher or wherever you stream your audio. We'll see you next week for another episode. This is Chris. We'll talk soon.